Good afternoon. It is good to be together again as we continue, continue our study this day. I encourage you to open your Bibles again to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to backtrack a little bit. I skipped over some before for sake of time. And we'll uh, catch back up to where we are and try and finish up. Serving within my role, within, within God's design, God has always had the right to make the rules. Within being the creator, he is obviously greater than the creation. So therefore, it makes no sense to question the creator. Now we can look back at Job and others and... Um, as he was placed in the, the seat, in the, in the court hearing, so to speak, you see the questions that are posed. And the understanding being, look, where were you? God has the right, God has the perfect knowledge and understanding, and therefore, within it, we want to give all praise and honor to God. As we look at 1 Timothy 2, let's look back at verse 8. There have been those that have looked at verse 8 and said, Well, when you read at the beginning, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, and you put all the emphasis on that, you say, Well, this part of the verse is important. And then it says, Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And you say, You ignore that part. So we're going to make sure that we take time to focus in on everything and catch what is going on within 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. They would say, Well, if we ignore... Uh, lifting holy hands, you say, well, that's not necessary, but you do say that, that men are the ones that have to pray. Now, I think there are some things that are important in the understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse, well, in lieu of all of what the Bible says, no matter what verse you're looking at, we want to understand it within its context and within its purpose. So, within 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, he talks about the men and gives the guidelines for them being the ones that lead in prayer and he recognizes or uh, what is shown is a prayer posture that takes place just incidentally this is something that takes place during prayer he says when they uh, when these men prayed when they prayed in everywhere then at any location he says, lifting up holy hands. Now, this is something that would have taken place by happenstance and would have not therefore been a law that when you pray or, for instance, when a man prays, he has to observe this lifting up of holy hands. Now, as we talk about lifting up of holy hands, I think there are many different things that we can recognize in Scripture that will show the purpose behind it. Uh, originally, I believe if you look at that of lifting up holy hands, it would have been something similar to this. In the religious world today, a lot of times I think it's more like this is what they call it. Uh, within lifting up holy hands as they would have held their hands, it would have been in an upward transition. Uh, the palms facing upward, it's kind of... I probably shouldn't make this correlation, but if you look at a dog, a lot of times if you scare the dog, the dog rolls back on its back and puts its belly up, which is showing its most vulnerable position. It says, look, you're in control. Okay, when we do this prayer posture that, that he references, it was something of showing the control or the vulnerability, recognizing the superiority of the maker 
to that of the creation. Within this posture that he recognizes in prayer, if this was the only time in Scripture that it mentioned posture, or every time in Scripture that it mentioned uh, holy hands, every time that prayer was mentioned, he said, holding holy hands, then I have no doubt we would understand, you know what? By design, we see every time that in Scripture that they lifted up holy hands, we would want to do the same. However, within Scripture, uh, there are many, many prayer postures that are recognized. On different occasions, there are many different ways in which prayer took place, and we will look at some of those as we go through. But within the, the verse, in verse 8, I would say lifting up holy hands is an incidental. It's something that took place, but it really goes to show the heart of the individual. Just as we looked at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6, go into your closet and pray. Why? Because the heart's got to be right. That was the point in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, here in the same instance, as he says, lifting up holy hands, I think it shows that vulnerable willingness, understanding that God is superior. And so therefore we see this holy hands mentioned. Now I've said many times in the past, like I would say that to a certain extent, as parents teach their children to hold their hands together, to a large extent, I think that would be a very, very much a correlation to holy hands that are mentioned here. Why? Because it was a removing distractions from our lives to focus on the superior one and recognizing that he is greater than I. Uh, you look at the, the vulnerability. They want to receive whatever blessing God pours out. You see these, these holy hands that were lifted, but holy hands was something that is more of a happenstance. It's something that happened regularly. We can go back through the Old Testament and see many times where they raised their hands. And I believe within all of this, it was showing that sign of God's nature superior to, superior to ours. It was showing that of honor and respect and a desire for God's care. You can look at Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus chapter 17, we see Joshua, as they go out a warring. Exodus chapter 17, drop down into verse 11. It said, And in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had... Bethshean and its towns, Ibium and its towns, and the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, and the inhabitants of Endor and its towns. Then, I think I got the wrong spot. Oh, I got it. Uh, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 11. So this ain't going right. Here we go. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed you go on into verse uh in verse 12 Moses hands became heavy so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and they were victorious as long as these hands were up there was something significant within it in showing honor and respect to God and as uh God cares for them in that in that battle so we see, these, we see this posture that takes place and it shows a certain honor and appeal to God. 
while the arms were raised, God's care was there. They were winning. But yet we see as the arms begin to fall that the Amalekites prevailed. Aaron lifted up his hands when blessing the Lord. If you look over at Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 9, drop down into verse 22. It says, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessing them, and came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. He had lifted his hands toward the people. It was something that they recognized. It was, a, it was part of their way of life. It was part of something that they would have understood. You know, I, uh, I don't see grace, but grace and I have an understanding because in class, anytime we talk, you know, I talk with my hands. My hands do half the talking, and she as well, if she makes a comment, she always moves her hand with the motion to, uh, you know, give the full effect Okay, within their society, we see that they, they had their hands there as they lifted them up. It was something important as they were pouring out uh, this message. You can go to Psalm chapter 141 and verse 2. We see the psalmist lifts his hand. Now, within prayer, as you go throughout Scripture, there are many times that we see different postures, different way in which they presented themselves as they offered prayer. We notice first in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, it said that the men everywhere lifting up holy hands, we see that it was offered. You know, in Mark chapter 11, he recognizes within prayer, there was a different thing that took place. Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. It says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now, that doesn't mean in verse 25 that is, if you've got something against your brother and you're not willing to forgive them, that you can just sit down and pray. It's still a happenstance. It's just something that he talks about within their prayer life. As they were standing and praying, if they recognized, you know what? I've got to get that right. He said, drop it and take care of it. Ensure that they forgave as God forgive, had forgiven them. In which case, the promise is they too will be forgiven. All right, within this we see lifting up holy hands was perfectly acceptable. We see standing as acceptable. I don't think, I don't think uh, sitting down is made to be unacceptable through this, but rather it's just a happenstance and it, what, it's, it's one way in which it took place. To further, to further understand, we can look at Psalm chapter 95. In Psalm 95, they weren't standing at all. In fact, quite the opposite. It says they were kneeling down. Psalm 95 and verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker. As they kneeled before Him, now whether we kneeled in prayer, whether we stood in prayer, whether we held our hands up, I don't think any one of them takes away from another, but what is the point with behind all of them? Showing honor to the one whom the prayer or the worship was offered. Genesis chapter 24 and verse 26 recognizes a bowed head. 
Genesis chapter 24 and verse 6, it says, Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. Well, does that mean it's then wrong for somebody to look up? I would say obviously not. As you go to John chapter 17 and verse 1, it says that they, they offered with an uplifted eye. So they had peered up at him. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. I don't think Christ was being dishonorable in looking to the Father when he prayed, nor do I think that the, uh, that the, the prayer was improper when it was bowed to the ground. I think all of these happened by happenstance and therefore leaving the option to the individual. I do think within each instance there is something that is important, and that is keeping a holy, a honorable affection that is shown to the Father. I think it is expected that the heart be in the right place to show honor to whom honor is due. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 13, it talks about a prayer being offered silently, quietly to themselves. You can go forward to John chapter 17 and we look at Christ as he lifted up his eyes and he spoke verbally. I think all are acceptable. None would be condemned, but rather it comes from that proper prayer which begins in the heart. Now, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, there's one more, there's one more guideline, I would say, that God gives. So he says in verse 8, he said, Lifting up holy hands, the man pray everywhere, and then it says, Without wrath and doubting. There was a proper attitude that accompanied prayer. You know, as you look throughout the New Testament, and he talks about, well, he talks about uh, the miraculous as they were going to do miraculous things. He says, not to be done without doubting. But as we consider our prayer, you know, you go back and you think about if you ask, ask expecting, understanding that God has the ability to provide. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 11. Here it says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this old tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector standing afar and off wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven. Does that mean it was wrong for Jesus to raise his eyes to heaven? Absolutely not. But we see the heart of the tax collector. It says, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. You know, we look at the, the Pharisee who prays first. I thank you, God, I'm not like them. We see a heart that is in the wrong place. We see an attitude that's from the wrong place. 
And we see ultimately that he wants himself to be lifted up rather than lifting up his petitions to the Lord. We understand we have our reward. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, as you look at verses 6 through 8, he recognizes that of the asking with an understanding. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, says him, without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. He says, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not a man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a devil-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He said, let him ask in faith. Don't be doubting. You go back and we see within... Within God's design, there is a proper attitude. There's a proper thought process that is tied to these prayers that are offered. You go back to Matthew chapter 6 and we see the, the grudginess that's tied to it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Verse 12. Well, we got to be sure that we're forgivers. He says, upon that is the tie to their own forgiveness. Forgive us our debts, as Jesus taught them to pray. And then finally in Psalm 66, in verse 18, without iniquity, without sin. As you consider the brother that has something against his other, his other brother, his fellow Christian, he said, first be reconciled. You look at Psalm 66, and verse 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, if I store up sin, if I store up evil, the Lord will not hear. Within 1 Timothy chapter 2, as God lays out the guidelines, as God lays out the role in prayer, we see not only is there a proper action, but there is a proper attitude. And within it, we want to do our best to fulfill all of what God says. Eliminating wrath, eliminating doubt in those prayers that are offered. Now as we go forward, we recognize, we looked at this morning, the modest apparel that goes with this learning that takes place. And we're going to go down in verse 11 and 12. It says, let, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. It says, but to be in silence. Now, we talked about this this morning as we looked through, as we looked through the, the word quiet, as we looked through the, the, the speech when he says, be silent. I think as we look at this teaching that takes place, there is, an author there is an authority that comes. And it's come from, it comes from God. But in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. All right? Within this, within this teaching that takes place, we understand it's still in the same view as all of this context. Okay? 
Does that mean that the mother can't teach her child what five plus five is? No. Does that mean that the mother can't teach their child what the creation account is? Absolutely not. You know, as, uh, as I was talking with Eric, it's very interesting. You look at the writer, maybe I should say uh, not the writer, you look at the receiver of this book. As Paul writes to Timothy, what a special individual. If you go back and look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul writing to Timothy says, When I call in remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, says, Which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, he said, I am persuaded is in you also. Well, how did Timothy get this strong faith? If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, I believe he understood perfectly that being taught by Lois and Eunice was a great blessing in his life. Okay, you can go back to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, let's see. I think I got it. We'll see. Verse 3. Nope. Got the wrong spot. Do what? I am looking for... Come again. 14? I don't know what I'm looking for. I'll look for it later. Uh, as you look back, it, it refers to Timothy's father was a Greek. Mom was a... Mom was a devout, faithful woman, okay? And we recognize that mom was a faithful woman, and we look back and we see that he got this strong faith from somewhere. You look at Timothy, and he was taught by a mother and a grandmother. He had a great example, and therefore... When he writes 1 Timothy chapter 2, I don't believe he's discrediting that he learned, but rather in light of what's taking place in verses chapter 2, verses 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. We recognize that there is a difference in the private role of teaching and the public role that also could take place. Look at Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, just a couple, couple pages over. As you look at the older women and their, um, their need to teach the younger women. It says in verse 4 that they admonished the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Okay, we see the women were faithfully teaching the younger women. Okay, 
They showed them, they admonished them, they encouraged them as keepers of the home, as mothers in the task that they had at hand. So no doubt, as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he says a woman is not to teach, what we're talking about is a man in the, the public setting. Further, I mentioned this morning, I didn't flip over there, but in Acts chapter 18 and verse 26. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 26, if you notice and follow along in the reading there, we've got a Paulus that comes about. It says he was very fervent and in spirit. He was excited to get out and to teach. He was, he was telling it to the best of his ability. It says in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. It says, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, notice, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay? That's a male and a female, and it says, they explained to him. What do you think explained means? It means they taught him. They helped him understand more clearly, or maybe we should use the word more accurately, accurately, shouldn't have said it, accurately, uh, more accurately, the way of the Lord. After this, we recognize that there was learning that took place on Apollos' part because of the private setting teaching of Aquila and Priscilla. You know, another thing is you look at, as you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and we recognize he, he talks about the, the women learning in silence. I can't help but think of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 where it says teaching and admonishing, teaching and admonishing. Billy's pointed it out multiple times as he gets up and sings. When we, when we sing songs, what are we doing? We are teaching and admonishing. Who's doing it? All of us, every person has a role in it, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Then he says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The women teach in that example, just like privately, Aquila and Priscilla were right to pull Apollos to the side and say, listen, look at this. Follow God. Do what God said. And so we see the woman isn't to exercise the authority of, God has given man in the leadership role, but that does not diminish or remove an important role. As you look at the church worldwide, I would say many times it has been said, and accurately so, that many of the women are the backbone of the church. They keep it going. They work hard for it. But men, we've got to stand up and be leaders. A big reason why there have been times where they have to be the backbone of the church is because men aren't doing their part. Now, women still have a great part in encouraging the hold to truthfulness, just as Aquila and Priscilla within that story. But within that public exercise of authority that God has designed and given... Men have a role to fulfill and the expectation by God is that they do such. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 14 and verse 35, we find... I didn't have time to go through 1 Corinthians, but as you look through 1 Corinthians, it has much to, uh, to say about the subject. I encourage you to go, go, go home and read uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and study it out this week. As you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're just going to call to verse 35. He said, if you want to learn something, he said, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. You go back through the setting, and he's talking about order in the church. Now, he gets on to men, too. He says, look, men, if someone's standing up and speaking, what? Be quiet. He says, there's got to be some sort of order so that everybody can learn. And he says, and look, in regards to the women, he said, be quiet. When you get home, you can ask questions. Now, I'm not saying that those questions can't be sort of like a Aquila and Priscilla where it's a learning opportunity. But he said as far as taking over and fulfilling that lead role, it was expected that the man fulfill it. As I mentioned earlier, I don't believe that the silence that's mentioned prevents the ability of the mother to correct her child. I think the silence that is mentioned references that in taking the lead role upon oneself. Okay? We recognize that the woman still has the responsibility to sing within the Lord's worship. And within each of these things, we recognize that God, by design, gave a role for the man to stand up and to be a leader. And I would say too often times, men, probably out of laziness, have chosen, you know, it would be, uh, I think it would be better if somebody else did this. I mentioned this morning, I believe, I'm sure there's some, uh, there's some women in here that could do a gr far better job than me in, uh, in speaking and, you know, demonstrating the truth. But the reality is, that's not how God designed it. By design, God said, this is the way that I want it to be. And so when he gets down to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, and he says, look, they're not to be teaching. He references this, this lead role, this taking over, this taking over authority. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but he says, but to be in silence. And we say, well, that's just outdated. I think it's hard-pressed to come to an understanding where we can say, well, God's Word is just outdated. You know, God said it was the same then and now. Still the same today and always. As we, look at, as we look at his design, when he says, let the woman learn in silence, there's going to be times that obviously they make lots of noise outside of worship service and they're going to learn and to teach. However, when it comes to this leadership role that takes place, he mentions it as silence in objection to that of being the lead role, being the one that takes over, that, that carries the presence of being in charge. So, as I mentioned this morning, why the guidelines? 
You look down into verse 13, and he says, For Adam was formed first. No further questions. He said, Adam was formed first. That's just the way it is. Within God's design, therefore, we can understand because Adam was formed first and the, the woman came from man. He said, that's the way it's going to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he alludes to this same point in verse 9 where he says, Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Why? Because it was God's design. And what was the hope and prayer? That as help meets, the two can work together to accomplish the goal. The goal is still the same. We've got to get to heaven. And I promise you it's a lot easier if you've got a godly wife by your side. It's a lot easier if you have a godly husband by your side. And so we work together. We work in tandem as we work to put the Lord first. You know, as you look at verse 14, it said, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I think that's very interesting. You know, as uh, you look at Adam, it's like Adam chose to do wrong with his eyes open. Uh, the woman being deceived, she falls into this, and Adam chose to go along with it. Listen to me very carefully. God said, men, be leaders. You want to know why Adam messed up? Because he wasn't a leader. Eve was deceived. Adam chose not to lead. Verse 15 he says, now don't go getting down on women. That's the point. Don't go getting mad at women because they have a different role than you. Women, don't go getting depressed because Eve chose in the garden. She was deceived by Satan and chose to partake of the fruit. Don't get down because God gave a design where the man is supposed to lead within the worship service. He says, nevertheless, in verse 15, this, this woman, Eve, uh, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Don't think, well, it's all over. Eve messed up. We might as well give up. Life is worthless now. Eve done, Eve done messed up, and we can't do anything right. We can't lead. We can't. We can't take over and make it go well. He said, she'll be saved in, in childbearing. The fruit of the womb that comes forth, you have the children that go forth. And he says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Guys, we got a task to do. We've all got an opportunity to fulfill our God-given role within the church. Within the life that we live, we have the opportunity to be a blessing to the world if we will put Him first. And so I beg of you today, put Him first. Continue in faith. 
Continue in love. Continue in holiness with self-control. As you look at that self-control, Christianity in a, in a nutshell is that of self-control. Understanding that you've got to control oneself to make life more about Christ and less about me. I gave up my life because I want to live for Christ. My prayer is today that you've made the same decision. If you haven't made the decision to give up your life for Christ, you know, there's no better time than right now. Understanding that Jesus Christ died for you. Understanding that sin separates us from God and we've got to get sin out of our life. We choose. I want sin away from me. It's called repentance. We say, no more. No more sin for me. We choose this lifestyle where we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and we're going to confess Him before men and make a lifestyle where we work for Him in the future. We see we're buried in the water, but we rise to walk in newness of life. We talk about baptism. Well, the war, the battle, the enlistment has taken place. We looked at the enlistment on Tuesday morning. You know, baptism's a start. But you got a life to war for the Savior. Pray that you're warring a good warfare. If you're not on the straight and narrow path, if you haven't given your life to Christ, make a change right now. Come as we stand and sing.